police abolition is about envisioning a world that we'd like to get to where we have addressed the problems of these profound inequalities to such a degree that we don't need people with guns and cages for human beings to produce safety. What's up, friends and damn givers? This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I sit down for meaningful conversations with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. Well, it's 10.30 p.m. I have a delicious cup of coffee sitting next to me, and I'm so excited to introduce you to my next guest. On this episode, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Alex Vitali. Alex is professor of sociology and the coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He has spent more than 30 years writing about policing, and he consults with both police departments and human rights organizations all over the world. Alex Vitali is the author of City of Disorder, How the Quality of Life Campaign Transformed New York Politics and his latest work in 2017, The End of Policing. He has also written for the New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, The Nation, Vice News, Fortune, USA Today, and others. And he has appeared on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah and many other shows like it. And we're so honored to have him on this show. During our chat, we focus on his book, The End of Policing, We talk briefly about what it means to defund the police versus abolishing the police. We talk a little bit about the history of policing in this country, and we discuss why something needs to change soon. Now, I know this is a hot topic right now. This conversation makes some folks very angry. Many of you have cops in your family, or maybe you're a cop, or you have just a massive amount of respect for the policing community. I just want you to know that this conversation is not the end-all, be-all conversation on this matter. We talk about his book, his work, the the, the 30 years of work that he has done, but we don't get too in-depth, okay? So listen to this conversation, take it all in, and then begin to do your homework. Don't write off this topic before you do the research and study. Buy Alex's book, and there are many other brilliant resources and lectures out there that I'll link to in the show notes. If your response to this Even this title or this intro is simply, well, we can't not have a police. That's stupid. What about all the bad guys? Which is something I've heard many times in the last week in different conversations I've been having. So if that's your immediate reaction, then please take a deep breath, listen to this conversation, start studying, and begin researching because this is a complex issue with only complex answers, nuanced answers. It is not black and white. It's not easy, but this topic is worth checking out if we truly want a country that is for all people, not just some, and a country that wants life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone. Okay? Now that I've said that, why don't we jump right in? My email is hello at letsgiveadam.com. Hit me up anytime for any reason. I'd love to hear from you. And now, my conversation with the brilliant Alex Vitali. Let's go. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast, Alex Vitali. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You bet, Nick. 
I'm super excited. We're uh, not about the topic necessarily that we're going to talk about because it's heavy and it's complex and it's very polarizing. But I'm excited that uh, we get a chance. We've we've addressed uh, the last few months, well, the last few years, but especially the last few months where there's been a heightened sense of what the hell do we do about this huge issue that we have right now? I have friends that have been downtown for 60 plus days. I live in Nashville right now. And I have friends that have been downtown Nashville for 60 plus days fighting against uh, the powers that be and fighting against things that shouldn't be, we shouldn't have to fight about this. These should be a given and yet we're fighting about them. So there's so much going on. So I'm excited to have you on someone that can, again, I've had other guests on that have talked very intelligently uh, uh, about these issues, but I think we're going to have a deeper conversation here today. So you are the author of The End of Policing. And that title obviously caught my mind for a bunch of different reasons. It caught my, caught my eye for a bunch of different reasons. Um, before we get to your book and before we get to all the things that you are going to teach us and kind of uh, yeah, help us understand in a greater and deeper way, I always love to spend a couple minutes getting to know our guests a little bit because I always, whenever I ask for the story, for the background, something or some things always come up that help us kind of connect the dots in so many ways as to why you chose to do the things that you're doing today. So for a couple minutes, could you give us the background, the who, what, when, where, and why of Alex Vitali's life, kind of what <laughs> led you to do this important work that is so meaningful and so needed right now in our time in history? Sure. Well, I grew up in Houston in the 70s and 80s, so it was 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, and went off to college in the early to mid-80s and was interested in in urban affairs kind of broadly and ended up looking at like economic development programs and community development initiatives, housing stuff, and ended up uh, in California working at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness after school, Hmm. doing that kind of stuff, you know, helping to develop housing policy for the city and county of San Francisco, Uh, working in coalition with uh, service providers, labor unions, and others to to ensure spending for for public health measures uh, and social services that directly benefited homeless folks. And it was during that time that that I got pulled into this work. You know, in a lot of ways, um, the the academic discourse around urbanism had very little to say about policing and crime. And then criminology as an academic discipline had nothing to say about housing, healthcare, social, you know, or very little to say about those things. These were we, these were like distinct distinct spheres. And what I what I learned from my experiences in San Francisco was that these things, in fact, are intricately connected. Yes. And what I witnessed firsthand was really that the city of San Francisco, like so many cities at that time period gave up on the possibility of actually housing people and instead turned the problem over to the police to manage. And so that policing is is not like just this given. It's a set of strategic political decisions about whether or not police should be tasked with managing certain kinds of problems. And and what what I saw and what I still see is just the the turning over of an ever-growing list of problems to the criminal justice system. 
And that is not a given. We, we could choose to approach those problems in other ways. Yeah. I, you know, and I'll just finish by saying, and then I moved to New York in 93 to, to go back to school to look at global cities, right as Giuliani gets elected in New York City and the whole thing played out there. And so I became even more interested in these connections. Yeah, you lived through, yeah, some interesting years in New York City, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into here in a minute. Before we go too far into that, because I have, yeah, there's so much that I want to tackle. You you kind of brought up, I think, the crux of our conversation, you know, our forthcoming conversation. But you, here's what I want to dig into just for a minute. Maybe there's nothing there. If not, we'll move on. But, you know, you were interested, it seems like from, from a, you know, maybe not a young age, from at least from a teenager thinking about college, you were interested in how to help people, right? How to dig into kind of these deeper issues that take time and they're, they're, they're not simple. They're very complex. And it, you'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of that complexity here in a minute. Where did that come from? Was that something that you sort of developed on your own or mentors or, you know, parents, or how did that, was that sort of the environment you grew up in or was that yeah. something you had to like go out and seek? So, no, I grew up in a pretty political household. So my father had been an elected official in Illinois he, uh, before I was born. And uh, my mother ran for a small office in Houston and they were both active in civil rights oriented organizing in, in, in Texas in the 1960s. So, uh, and I come, my, my father's side of the family in Illinois were all coal miners and were very active in, in unionization and uh, fights within the union, within the United Mine Workers. So I, I think of myself as kind of a fourth generation unionist. I'm, I'm also, have been a, a union officer and an activist for a number of years. So, yeah, so the politics came fairly naturally. And, you know, my idea of rebelling was that I also read the Wall Street Journal, you know, in my spare time uh, and kind of wanted to get uh, out of Houston and, and explore places where uh, there was a greater diversity of political organizing, et cetera, going on. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you kind of pointed out that there were different factors. Sometimes people kind of fall into it or they have some sort of inclination or, a, you know, an outside factor kind of pulls them in. But, you know, to be honest, I'm I'm not, I'm fairly young, I'm in my mid thirties, but growing up, like the only time that I ever heard politics talked about was to, was mostly to bad mouth uh, one, one political leader, the president, that was it. There was no talk of, you know, co Congresswomen, Congressmen, senators, representatives, mayors, council members. It was none of that. It was only, it was only when my parents or the people around me wanted to badmouth one, one person. And that was the, you know, a president that they didn't like or whatever. And so I didn't grow up in that. And it wasn't until my mid twenties that I really took actually late twenties that I took more of an interest and in, no, this is something that not just at a, you know, at a federal level, but at a, state level. And I grew up mostly, I spent most of my growing up years overseas and then moved back in my mid twenties. Maybe that's why I got interested is because I saw how fucked up everything was here. And it was like, I need to know really what's going on, not just at a federal level, but at a state and at a city and at a town level, right? Wherever I'm living. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that was sort of your environment because that's what we're trying to do with our kids is I, I want, I want to bring them up in a, in a household where there is, where there's truth and where they are seeing that truth lived out 
in community and political action. And they've already seen that. We've we've attended marches and they're very aware of what's going on in our society at the best they can at five, seven, and eight years old. Um, and so I love, I love hearing that connection. So you are the, um, let's bring it to a little bit of modern day. Thanks for sharing some of your story. You're the professor of sociology at Brooklyn College, coordinator uh, of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. And again, as I already mentioned, the author of the 2017 book, The End of Policing. And that book has a hell of a subtitle. I'm not sure it's technically a subtitle, but on the cover, it says the problem is not police training, police diversity, or police methods. The problem is the traumatic and unprecedented expansion and intensity of policing in the last 40 years, a fundamental shift of the role of policing in society, the problem of police society, the problem is policing itself. So we've seen in the last few months, some pretty traumatic things happen in our country. Again, this is not new. You wrote this book in 2017. This is a couple of years after Mike Brown, and you've got all these different, these different Eric Garner and these different cases that have sort of been highlighted, not to mention the thousands, the tens of thousands that have happened without, you know, body cams on or without cell phone, you know, footage rolling. And so we're in this time when we can see very, well, not we, I say, I say we very loosely because it's not all Americans, right? There are there are millions, tens of millions of Americans that have sort of co-opted this Black Lives Matter movement with the Blue Lives Matter and, you know, back the blue and all sorts of things. And there's there doesn't seem to be a willingness to really look at, is there a problem here? It is just an automatic default. And this is something I don't understand about, uh, maybe, maybe it's not an American, but I don't understand. It's just the default of we're going to defend the police. We're going to back the, the authorities. We're going to back the powers that be no matter what, because they're there. They must have our best intent. They must have our best uh, intentions in mind because they're there to protect us. Look, they're, you know, it's right on the side of their car to protect and to serve. But then we see these cases over and over again. In fact, I saw you uh, tweet this morning about a case in the Bronx, right? Where the, uh, the, the police, I guess, I, I, I didn't look into it super, you know, a ton. Maybe you have more context, but this young man, Kowalski Trawick, that was murdered in cold blood by police in his own home, in his own kitchen while cooking a meal. And the DA decided to not file charges. And so we've got all these cases, so many cases that are just tragic. You know, some of the most recent ones, Eric, uh, 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 George Floyd, you know, which was in my, we used to live in Minneapolis. That was my neighborhood. I know that that intersection where he was murdered at Cub Foods, like I know that intersection really, really well. So that one hit, especially close to home. Talk to us about, you already started to get into it a little bit, but talk about, you mentioned several times in your story in the opening that it's not a given that we continue to pile on all of these responsibilities onto underpaid, under-equipped police that in the first place probably weren't doing all the things they should have been doing. And then we demand of them so much more, things they're not equipped to do, things they should never be doing, uh, things that we should not give to someone who is also holding a lethal weapon on their side, right? So your work is super important. Give us sort of a framework for what you're doing and why you're doing it. Well, I wouldn't say that they're under-equipped and underpaid. I mean, most of them make more than I do and I'm a tenured full professor at a university. So they're extremely, and mostly in the big cities when you include things like overtime and, and, and a full pension after 20 years, they're much better paid than I am. Uh, and they are awash in equipment, uh, you know, uh, armored personnel carriers and sniper rifles and tear gas. So 
But to get to the larger point, so the cover of the book that you read, you know, refers to the dynamics in a way of the last 40 or 50 years. So I sometimes like to say, you know, there's part of this story about policing that is about the last 40 or 50 years. And then there's another part that's about the last 200 years. So that policing in its origins and functions has always been primarily a tool for managing the social problems created by regimes of exploitation. Hmm. So in the, in the late 18th and early 19th century, when modern policing is created, those regimes of exploitation are things like colonialism, slavery, and industrialization. So it's about the suppression of unions, the suppression of slave uprisings, and the capturing of, of, of runaway slaves. It's about the suppression of anti-colonial movements, the, the extermination and driving out, for instance, of the indigenous populations uh, across North America. Um, but today, over this last 40, 50 years, I mean, we don't have slavery and colonialism in that same sense. We barely sure. have industrialization. In fact, what we have is this kind of neoliberal economy where people who are tied to global finance, uh, uh, global corporate activity, multinational corporations have become fabulously wealthy with the direct support of government that has subsidized them, cut their taxes, uh, deregulated them, right? While the rest of us have been dealing with growing economic precarity, downward mobility, insecurity. So this new economic system has produced mass homelessness. And we didn't used to have homelessness in the United States in mm -hmm. any large scale. It's produced mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems. The economic precarity has driven people into black markets of drugs and sex work and stolen and pirated goods. And then police have been tasked with the management of those problems. And if you, if you look at what police really do all day, every day, that's what they're doing. They're managing homeless people. Yeah. They're going on mental health crisis calls like this one in the Bronx that, that yep. ends so terribly. They're, they're, they're dealing with the failures to invest in schools by flooding the schools with police. You know, they're, they're kicking kids off the corner for dealing drugs and hanging out and, and smoking marijuana, whatever, or yep. in the park. That's what police do is put a lid on those problems so that yep. those systems of exploitation can continue. And so the, the exact Activities of police change over time depending on what the problems are that they're managing, but we should always look for the roots of those problems in these systems of economic exploitation. And that's a, it's a good point what you brought up earlier. When I said, uh, when I said they're underpaid and under-equipped, the underpaid was sort of tongue-in-cheek because that's what I get a lot of times from mm. my friends who, you know, talk about their cop friends who are amazing and they don't, you know, they're, they're one of the good ones. And they, they, you know, they don't make enough, blah, 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 blah. And right, but that's not taking into account, again, this, these, these pensions and these different benefits they get. And the under-equipped, obviously not, uh, I'm not referring to, you know, weapons and other resources like that, right? Because one of the big problems we have to address and talk about is the militarization of our police force. I mean, 
uh, I was more, you know, referring to what you just talked about. You've got these cops going on there and they might even be trained. If you, if you look at this case in the Bronx, like they were trained for crisis, whatever, you know, whatever, yep. whatever crisis intervention team, right. CIT. And they still did what they did. So even right. with the training of, you know, to help with these mental health issues they might encounter, they're still making poor decisions that are, that are ultimately ending in, you know, the, 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 the snuffing out of innocent lives. Right. I mean, the only reason, the only reason I mentioned it, right. Is because it is important. One One of these dominant narratives we hear is this police reform narrative that says that the problems of policing are in fact that they're underpaid and undertrained and under resourced. And that what the way we prevent, you know, these, these horrible deaths is we give them more professionalization when we try to stamp out some of the bias and some of the bad apples and that that's, that's all we need to do, that that's going to fix the problem. And that that means that we don't have to address any of these thornier issues about profound racial and economic inequalities in American society. Yeah. I mean, systemic racism uh, and other systemic issues like like systemic racism are very prevalent and they are being upheld as you talked about like this the the lid being put back on right they're being upheld by we're not addressing the real issues are we we're not addressing the fact that even though redlining is illegal it's still happening today we're not addressing you know uh, so many people look at, uh, you know, a Rayshard Brooks or somebody that was murdered in a Wendy's parking lot and they look at, oh, he had this and he did that in his past or whatever. And they're looking at this one, they're looking at this one person that might have a record. They've done this, that, or the other. And we're not looking at the million and one factors that got them there, right? We're not looking at, a, you know, a George Floyd. One of the first things millions of people try to do is to point out previous things that he had done, right? We're not, we're not willing to look at the system as a whole. We, uh, you know, because things I, I've had very, very smart friends of mine, well-meaning, well-intentioned friends, you know, point out that systemic racism cannot exist because it's illegal for it to for it to be for it to be so. And I, I just can't when I, I look at them and I, you know, whether visibly or not visibly rubbing my temples, like, how is it possible that you believe that just because something is not you know, not legal, that it's still not happening, right? We live in a country where it's possible for the president to get on Fox News last night and literally talk about an active crime that he's committing. And that is suppressing votes by def- trying to defund the USPS. He literally said, if they don't have the $25 billion or whatever it was that they need, then they're going to be, then they're not going to be able to do all these mail-in votings, right? Like he literally said, I'm committing a crime. Uh, and nobody cares. So we're in a country where the people in the highest office can commit crimes on a regular basis, things that you and I can never get away with. And yet we believe just because systemic racism is illegal and the different components of it are illegal, that it's not happening anymore. It's happening every single day. And anybody in our society can get any kind of illegal drugs they want whenever they want them. Right. I exactly mean, the idea right. that drugs are that we can't get drugs because they're illegal. is just ludicrous. And this is an example of a kind of liberal uh, erasing of the realities of how the law works. So they, they and that, that produces a lot of these misguided reforms. They imagine that the police are just here to neutrally enforce a legal system that everyone benefits from. 
without acknowledging the fact that most of what the police do has nothing to do with what's on the law books. They're producing order, not lawfulness, that the laws do not benefit everyone equally. You know, the war on drugs was was created to produce racial inequality. That was the point. And we know that because the people who did it have come forward and said that's what it was about. Yep, yep. You know, and and that if we can just, you know, create a neutral professional law enforcement organization, everything will go f- back to normal and everything will be fine. And they can just keep arresting young people for marijuana in the park like it's no big deal. Yeah, if, if we ever needed proof that the war on drugs was explicitly to hurt people of color, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow is a fantastic resource for that. I've mentioned it before on the podcast. And again, that's not a, you know, I am admittedly a, a, a more progressive uh, person, you know, in my beliefs, but this is a this is a left and a right problem. Both are very guilty at pushing this narrative, whether it's, whether you know, no matter which ideology it's, you know, uh, uh, covered in, you know? And so, um, so let's talk about, uh, right now, my situation in Nashville. I live in a city that is, uh, well, we're the only blue city besides Memphis and Nashville, the only blue cities, blue areas in this whole sea of red. And, um, you know, 70 ish days ago when things were really getting heated, some, uh, some protests started down downtown and 61 days ago, and I participated in those protests, and 60, no, 62 days ago today, some of my friends started uh, protesting downtown, day and night, 24 hours a day. Some of them are on shifts, but they've been down there for 62 days straight. There have been 200 plus arrests. My friend, Justin Jones, who's an amazing human and a wonderful activist, he's been arrested seven times, including yesterday, he was arrested again for, um, what was it, Uh, aggravated littering is the... (laughs) Is the, is the dumbass charge that they charged him with. Um, and they have, they have had uh, our, our governor, Bill Lee, who is a disgraced leader in so many ways, he has had state troopers um, hurting, literally manhandling people, arresting them to the tune of, again, over 200 people in 60 days. And yesterday, there was a, they, the, the, they, he called special session for three things. And one of the things, he literally called people back to the city for special session lawmakers to talk about how do we make it more criminal for people to protest peacefully on state property. And yesterday was made a, I think it's a class E felony, which can get them up to six years in prison for peacefully protesting on state property. And so I imagine, you know, they're three miles from me right now. And I imagine some more of them will get arrested today. And obviously that those, those unconstitutional uh, uh, laws will be, you know, pushed back on by many uh, more moral people than, than they, but, that's the situation I'm de- I'm dealing with it every night. I've been down there several nights with them. I almost got arrested the first time I went down. They arrested the black girl next to me and pushed and threw me back over the fence. That was a weird thing that you would go after the black girl next to me and not, you know, not arrest me. But it's, you know, one of the conversations we're talking about is abolish the police, defund the police, right? And obviously those are, they have similarities, but they are different. Let's talk about that for the next section of our conversation, because I think it's important. I have been criticized by so many friends and in so many different ways, publicly, privately, for pushing for the abolition of the police. Because I don't believe, just as I, just as I also, um, I'm, I'm much less educated on this topic and I'm learning more about it, but much like I also push for the abolition of the prison system. 
for, for many of the same reasons, right? So many of them are tied together. You, you've talked quite a bit about defunding the police and abolishing the police. Do we, do we defund? Do we abolish? What are the main differences there? And how do we actually do that? Because one of the things that when a, when a red-blooded white American male that owns three guns, you know, and is scared of a lot of things around him, most of them that aren't actually real, but, you know, he's built up all these fears around him about people of color and about immigrants. And he's listened to a lot of the president's rhetoric. When he hears that, he thinks, well, who am I going to call? What do we do when we get in trouble? And we do live in a country where there are 350 million people, 340 million people and 400 million guns, right? So more than one gun per person. I don't own any, my kids don't own any. And so someone out there has all of our, you know, has our, has our number of guns. How do we do that in this country? Yeah. I think it's, I think we can do it. I want it to happen because I want a peaceful, equitable society in the future for my kids to raise their kids in. But how do we do that? How do we abolish so, police? Yeah. So first, let me let me just say a couple things about Nashville. So Nashville was one of these cities where there was already a kind of defund the police movement underway. And I think that's part of why we've seen this sustained level of protest there, because yes. I think for a lot of people across the country, the first time they ever heard of this idea of defund or abolish the police was at the end of May, beginning of June, when they saw a lot of cardboard signs being held up about yep. defund the police. And, and there hasn't been enough attention to where did this come from, because it didn't just emerge spontaneously. It's because folks in places like, like Nashville and Durham and, and, and to some extent Memphis, but also Dallas and St. Louis and so many places. Places that you wouldn't expect. That's right. Signs. That's right have been developing campaigns to redirect funding from police and jails and youth lockups and prisons into community identified needs to produce public safety. And so in Nashville, people turned out to, to local city council budget hearings and were lobbying city councilmen, you know, and doing that hard community organizing about shifting the political priorities of the city. And so when, when Minneapolis happens, they already know that the solution is not gonna be more money for police body cameras or another police community encounter session, you know, or more implicit bias training, that that stuff is done. We're, we're pat we've seen through that nonsense and we want to reduce the impact of policing on our communities by replacing them with other things. The other thing I want to say about Nashville and the response to the protests is that this echoes what I said before, which is when we see a problem turned over to the police to manage through a process of criminalization, we need to ask who's benefiting from this politically. And that's what's happening here, is that instead of the state of Tennessee taking seriously the demands of communities to redirect these resources, to invest in communities in positive ways instead of tearing them down, they're suppressing the movement through criminalization. So it's the exact same dynamic as yeah. saying, we're not going to house people. We're going to break up their encampments, put them in jail, drive them around the city all night. You know, it's the same dynamic. And this 
you know, tells us something about what it means when we say defund or abolish the police. Now, in my mind, defund the police is what we would call a non-reformist reform. It's, it's a reform that leads to the possibility of something much more transformative. So it is laying out a logic that says that the solution to abusive policing is not a bunch of superficial reforms designed to restore legitimacy to police. I don't want to restore legitimacy to policing. I don't want to get the public to trust the police. What I want is to have people actually have decent housing, jobs, healthcare, education, et cetera. That's what I want. And policing is actually an impediment to that. Not only because it sucks up resources that can yeah. be used to produce those things, but also because it rests fundamentally on an ideology, on a worldview, on a set of political beliefs that says that the problems in our communities are the result of individual and group moral failure or evilness that will only respond to punitive, coercive, and violent interventions. And that worldview is fundamentally diametrically opposed to a worldview that says that the problems in our society are the result of systems of exploitation that have rested on inequalities of race and class, as well as gender and sexuality in some important ways. And so that uh, when we invest in policing, we're cutting the legs out from under a demand for Medicaid for all, a, a Medicare for all, a demand for housing for all, a demand for decent schools for everyone. Mm -hmm. So police abolition is about envisioning a world that we'd like to get to where we have addressed the problems of these profound inequalities to such a degree that we don't need people with guns and cages for human beings to produce safety. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same thing with, uh, I see the parallels there, even with our prison system, right? Where we, we seem so, maybe this is a bad example. As you were talking, it made me think of, uh, even some of the parenting. Well, I should say more than that. I love my parents and they've, they've changed so much in the last, you know, 15, 20 years since I was a kid, but they were in a, they were in a weird, like right wing, uh, evangelical Christian cult growing up mm -hmm. and there was really hard discipline measures. Right. And there wasn't, there, there wasn't a lot of focus on tr training. There wasn't a lot of focus on, let me, let me build you into being a, not just even a decent, but a wonderful moral human being. The only time we got sort of this, uh, we got a ton of attention was when the, the, the rod was coming when the spanking was coming, right? It was when you did something bad, then you get my full attention. You're going to find out just how shitty that thing you did was. And here's the punishment for it versus spending a lot of time in different ways. And so the parallel with like the policing is so much of our time and energy and money gets in resources, gets sucked up into building this super robust militarized uh, police state versus putting that money, putting those billions of dollars in, in, you know, in the case of many cities, putting those billions of dollars into 
uh, community efforts, putting those billions of dollars into better schools, all those things that will prevent many of these crimes from happening later on, right? We, we, we don't seem to care how they get to the, how they get from point A to point when they commit a crime, whether it's an actual crime or not. We just care that when they commit that crime, that we're ready to snatch them up. Yeah. So in the same way that the kind of the, the, my upbringing and my, my dis, the kind of discipline I received, there was no like investment in training me. It was just when you fucked up, Nick, then, you know, we strike. Versus, negative attention. Yeah. That negative attention. And then, and then the same thing is, I think there's a parallel with the prison system, right? It's, we know the recidivism rate is so high because I mean, basically once you're in, and again, Michelle Alexander's book talked about this at length. Once you committed a crime, you're in the, even if it's a, even if it's something super small, super tiny, you'll never make it out of there unless you have the like real intentional mentors and resources around you, because the system is meant that once you're in, you never leave, right? You are, when, when you get out, the resources are not there to uh, treat you like a human being again. In many cases, you can't vote. Nobody's going to hire you because you have that felony charge on your, you know, no one's so, so employers, the state, the, the city, the state, the country does not treat you like a human ever again because of this charge that you have. And uh, so, yeah, it's this, it's this, it, it, we're not putting the money and the resources, the time and the energy into all of the things, all the programs, all the people, all the jobs that would prevent people from getting to that point in the first place, right? You know, Americans have a deep love affair with authoritarianism. Yes. Now, some of this is, is, is rooted in the deep history of American slavery and colonialism and the use of, of violence and author, authoritarianism to manage these systems of exploitation that are at the heart of American history and, and American economic wealth. Uh, and this includes international colonialism and, and imperialism. Um, but also, you know, our roots in a kind of evangelical Christianity. This can't, this can't be papered over, you know. But I think it's been made worse. And, and we've seen this rise of fundamentalism across all religions in recent decades. Yep. And I think this is tied to profound insecurities that people are experiencing in the face of global economic trends, the increasing power of multinational corporations, and more and more, you know, the, the disruption of the environment and the insecurity that comes with that. And so people are retreating retreating into religious fundamentalism, hoping that this will allow them to build these bulwarks, these walls of family values and parental authority that will protect them and their children from the vicissitudes of, you know, the liquidity of the, 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 the uncertainty and precarity of the modern global economy. And, this is, of course, why people vote for Trump, is that Big Daddy, the Big Daddy billionaire is going to save us. He's going to, you know, throw a wrench into this global system that's messed up our lives. And the challenge before us is to work with people to point out that 
the people who actually benefit from these arrangements are not like liberal elites. They're global corporations and big banks and high finance and these things and try to come up with a program for creating more safety, sustainability, economic security, family security. I mean, the irony is, is that the Republicans are the ones who support policies that undermine family security, yeah. clothed in this language of freedom, when, when it's, it's the left that has a real program for, for child support and, and, and better health care and, and better access to education and things like this. So, we, you know, we have a lot of work to do to articulate a positive aspirational agenda for safety and security that's not rooted in competition and exploitation. Yeah, you're very you're very correct and, and wise to point out that you know Americans sort of uh, they're enamored with authoritarianism. They're enamored with um, you know big big I don't know what you call Trump big papa or big daddy like yeah. just taking care of everything, right? Daddy Warbucks like it's taking a care of fascism. Yeah, and you know I just just this morning like 15 minutes before our call started before our video started, I saw this tweet from a well-known author that I like um I know his brother here in Nashville and anyway, he tweeted something about something to the effect of uh, which I've I've heard this argument so many times like you know, he's a well-known author so he's spoken all over the world and he says, you know, I've traveled so much and it's given me this deep appreciation for, you know, even though there's so many things wrong in America, like we have so many freedoms that other places don't have. Right. He said, you know, he referenced a friend and I'm not saying these are not real people. They probably are, but he referenced a friend that talked about how, you know, uh, I applied to start a business and I don't even know what country he was referring to, but I applied to start a business. I'll know in a couple of years if I can start it. Or, you know, another friend saying about his dictator leader, like, you know, we can now leave the country or whatever. And those are all things that are probably real. There are countries that are really, you know, oppressed in so many ways. I'm not denying that. But I replied and said, because again, I've spent uh, 15 or so years outside the US in 30 plus countries. And I said, exactly, I think exactly the opposite. Tra global travel, frequent travel has made me think the opposite about the US. Like we are not as free. We are not near as free as we say that we are we are actually a very oppressed people. And because we have this two-party system where we just go back and forth, right? I mean, four or eight years, right? One president gets in and just dismantles everything the other one did. Then the next president gets in and dismantles what the other one did. And we're not actually making any real progress. We're just fighting against each other. And so nothing ever gets done and we stay. And again, like you pointed out, these, these small government pro-life Republicans are the ones that are instituting programs and resources that are actually hurting people in so many ways. Um, and it's, it's really tragic. It's really tragic that that is, I want, I don't know if it can happen, but I want, I, I look forward to a day when we stop. And I know that this president more than any other president in American history has polarized us to the point where no meaningful, or I should say relatively few meaningful conversations happen uh, over, you know, different policies and abolishing the police and stuff, because it's so charged and so polarized. It is essentially a fuck you and fuck you back over and over and over again. Like you, I don't like, you're totally wrong. No, you're totally wrong. And we can't actually make any progress. So I guess the next 
question I want to move on to is how do we make progress? So you're, you know, in your book, and I want to point people to it and everything I've read and listened to you say online and otherwise, uh, it, it tells me that it, it can happen. We can abolish the police and we can see a more bright and beautiful future. But how does that happen? Like, how, how do we make that happen? How does that happen in a country, again, where there are more guns than people and where people love their Second Amendment rights, where they can, you know, and all these, and people love, love authoritarianism. They love the police. They love, you know, seeing those, especially if they're, you know, white and privileged because they don't have to worry about getting stopped by that cop even if they are smoking weed on their front porch, they love, you know, the, the presence of police and the presence of authority to make sure they're safe, even though, again, that's not actually happening. So how do we do this? Well, first I want to say, you know, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, 30% or so of people in our society really benefit from the arrangements we have right now. Hmm. They do have a lot of freedom. They have freedom to become fabulously wealthy, to travel, to, to start up businesses, to, to do all of that, and to benefit from that with you know, no real tax burden, no real regulation. Uh, but that, those benefits come at the expense of the rest of us. Yes. They, they are, you know, just look at the Amazon situation. You know, Amazon's owners, and it's not just Bezos, it's the people who own stock in, in Amazon yeah. in a large amount. They have become fabulously wealthy. Well, where did that money come from? It came from people who are trapped in their homes, desperate to get things that they need. It's a direct transfer of wealth to people who are in crisis, to people who are already fabulously wealthy, with no sense of any social obligation right? Uh, and, and they're doing everything they can to avoid paying any taxes so that some of that wealth can be redistributed to address the current crisis that we're in, where hospitals still can't get enough PPE, where it still takes, you know, four, five, 10 days to get a, a COVID test back. You know, the, we have a completely broken public health system. So what do we do about this? How do we address this, right? I don't think we start by saying, well, let's imagine tomorrow there are no police and then figure it out from, no. We have a system in place here. There's no magic switch that someone's going to find under a bush somewhere that's going to just poof all yeah, all yeah. are gone. That doesn't exist. We have a massive system of policing and prisons. And what we've got to do is we've got to build a different politics. And it has to be an aspirational politics. It can't just be about all police are bad or, you know, close all prisons. While I may support that in the long run, we need to have a, a politics that's about producing a sense of safety, security, and justice for people. And that means dealing with core issues of housing and education and healthcare and employment and economic security. And unfortunately, I think it's pretty clear that the, the leadership of both political parties is not prepared to really meaningfully embrace that, that we're going to have to build a new politics. But I see that underway. I mean, we can see that in some of the electoral victories that have occurred just, just this summer. Uh, new 
insurgent Democratic politicians who are going up against the old guard in places like St. Louis and New York and out in California and, and some other pretty unlikely places where people are trying to articulate this new politics. Uh, because really, this is not just a movement about bad policing, right? Black Lives Matter is about exactly. a movement for racial and economic justice, right? And so we've got to build out that agenda, and it has to be a positive agenda, not just a negative agenda. Yeah, I agree. I love that. I just I just interviewed Mark Charles, who is the 2020 independent candidate for president of the United States, and his you know, in his first 100 day plan, among other things, is to add, uh, add really vital to take out racist, sexist, misogynistic language out of the Constitution to add some other language. But the whole idea is to make the Constitution reflect not just because we the people isn't actually represented in there. It's very specific. It is white landowning men are represented, not one reference to a woman in the Constitution. And, uh, you know, it to calls for the it calls for the literally the slaughtering of Indians and black people are three fifths of a person in the Constitution. And so we need we need massive reform that truly reflects all the people. Right. We the people didn't get it done. It doesn't mean everybody. We've seen that over the last several hundred years. We need, uh, you know, progressive ideas and aspirational politics that truly include everyone, not just some. Right. That's right. I really appreciate your time. I know we just got cut off uh, for a few minutes there, but I'm glad we got to come back on for this sort of closing couple of minutes. Thank you so much for your work. I want to give you a chance right here at the end. Obviously, people that are listening, go buy, listen to, go buy, listen to, read, however you want to consume at the end of policing, uh, a wonderful resource that gives us, again, I think, I think the end of policing is very aspirational politics. It isn't all negative. It is ultimately about the good of all people, not just some of the people. Uh, but besides buying the book, what else do you want people to go check out or follow you or anything? Well, folks can follow me on Twitter at a Vitali with an E at the end. Uh, and I'm one of several nodes of a kind of national movement that that's, that's tracking these ideas and these movements uh, and also uh, the Policing and Social Justice Project that I coordinated at Brooklyn College has a website about our work on gang policing and, and what a bad idea that is. And that's at policinginjustice.org. That's amazing. Uh, friends, we've only literally we had 45, 50 minutes together with Alex today. There's so much more to talk about. So please go check out the show notes at letsgiveadam.fm. I'm going to link to a bunch of different videos, different interviews he's done, different articles he's written. We didn't even get to talk about a really meaningful article that we meant to. Uh, so I'll link to all that in the show notes. Alex Vitali, thank you so much for your time and thank you for joining us today. You bet, Nick. That's the show today, friends. A massive thanks to Alex Vitali for joining me on the show. We have so much to learn from his 30 years of work on this very important topic. I hope you'll visit letsgiveadam.fm for more resources and links on this topic. And thank you all for listening. Seriously, I'm honored that you listen to these conversations. I'm blown away that you show up week after week. I created this show, Chad Snavely produced it, and Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. You can reach out to me anytime at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I'm sending so much love and peace to each one of you. Stay safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.